Today's sermon text reading is from 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Let me try that again. Am I? Uh-oh. There we go. There we go. I don't have a uh, tendency to break mics where I go, but uh, I am, I am uh, grateful to be here. Um, Pastor John uh, mentioned earlier how in many ways this feels like home, and, uh, and it is in more ways than one. I am a son of, of Detroit. And so anytime I get a chance to preach in this great city, it's a, it's a blessing. I don't get a chance to do it as much as I would like or as much as I historically have. As he mentioned, for uh, 20 years, I was pastoring um, a great church in the city, Evangel Ministries. But even prior to that, I, w- I came to Christ in the city, was baptized in the city, married in the city, served in the city. And if God would be gracious to me, I'll die in the city of Detroit. I think Detroit is a beautiful city. In spite of the brokenness and the need for redemption, I believe that God's grace is fully at work in this city, and I'm grateful for it. When I pulled into the parking lot this morning, I was sharing with some of the brothers this morning, right next door, George Crockett Academy is a school that my aunt, for over 30 years now, has served as the lead administrator for, and and so, um, again, in many ways, this is, this is home. I want to give greetings to the leadership here. I was making note about um, the blessing that this leadership has been, even from afar. We have not had the opportunity to commune and fellowship as much as I think any of our hearts would like. But I'm grateful, uh, number one, to be able to be welcomed by a fellow Spartan, John. It was really good to, uh, to know after last night's victory I'd be with you today. Um, but I'll, I'll keep going because I don't want to divide the church. Uh, but um, I'm super grateful to uh, be with, with John and, and Dan. I know your love for this city. I know your love for the community. And, and I know also the, the great men that God has given to provide leadership for this church. I uh, got a chance to... connection again. There we go. All right. We, we will endure hardship as good soldiers. Get it. Um, but uh, I got a chance this morning to meet Demiron. Blessing to get a chance to meet you, brother. I've heard great things about you and 
grateful for you and Haley and your commitment to the gospel and your commitment uh, to being here uh, as well. John mentioned my, my great affection for the Jelenic family. I have uh, had the privilege of knowing the Jelenic family now for nearly 25 years. As I was thinking about last night, I remember walking into Michigan, what was then Michigan Theological Seminary, as a young pastor needing theological training, needing to be grounded in doctrine and faith and practice, and walking into the room of, of uh, Micah's dad, uh, Dr. John Jelenic, who um, I didn't know then uh, would play such a prominent role in my life, but over 25 years, uh, we um, studied God's word together, served shoulder to shoulder together. Uh, I learned so much from him and uh, just uh, hold a dear and special place in my heart for him, for Linda, uh, for, the chi- for the children. I knew that uh, Micah was, was um, unique in, in so many ways. When I first met him, I realized last night I was thinking about how subtly subversive Micah was. Uh, even at Moody Theological Seminary and uh, Michigan Theological Seminary, uh, gathered a small group to listen to White Horse Inn and discuss all that he was learning there. And, and uh, we, we discussed the scriptures uh, for, for many, many days and many hours. And I've always loved his heart for Christ, his love for people, his tenderness to the word. And so I am immensely encouraged at this uh, next chapter of God's grace at work in your life for you, for Laura, for the kids, and what God is going to do by his grace through Emmanuel in the Clarkston Waterford area. I know you've been encouraged to pray. I would encourage you to to celebrate because uh, each church plant is a fresh expression of uh, the spirit at work in our region. And I don't know about you, but I am grateful that God has chosen to be at work in this great city. And I'm convinced that um, there is a mighty uh, move of the spirit afoot. And, uh, and I'm grateful to be able to be a part of it. Today, I wanna, I wanna share uh, from, from God's word. Um, as I talk about the things that um, impress me and bless me the most about this great church and the movement that has spawned uh, through uh, this Detroit initiative and, and project. It is the fact that these churches are committed to the regulative principle of worship, which means that the Word of God is what guides our worship service. That everything we do is an outflowing of the Word of Scripture. And today I want to I connect to Scriptures and ask a few questions that I hope Micah is asking himself. And though this message may feel kind of uniquely catered to him, in some ways uh, I wish he and I could just be across a coffee table and and discussing these things. You have the uh, joy of, of eavesdropping on this conversation, but I think that God's word is applicable to every single one of us. And the Apostle Paul writing in what has become known classically as the pastoral epistles has been the bedrock for me as I've considered the questions that I'll pose to Micah and consider for just a moment uh, rhetorically 
as we look at the text of Scripture today. And I think one of the questions that needs to be asked and answered is, why does the church, the world, need teaching elders? Why does the church need pastors to which Micah is going to be ordained as in, in that office today? And, and it causes me to think of a, a story that has been frequently told. I don't, I don't know the origin of the story, but it has marked my thinking for many, many years. And it's the story of a, a famous church who about a century ago built a, a beautiful building in the downtown area of a major city. And uh, on the wall of the, uh, the outer wall of the church facing what would be known as, as Main Street, there was the inscription of the famous words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, and it reads that we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. The church proudly inscribed those words. But over years of time, ivy grew up on that wall. And after time, the last word of that phrase was covered up by the ivy that grew along that wall to the point where the phrase was reduced down to simply, we preach Christ. And that newer generation thought, well, that's not that big of a difference, not that monumental of a difference, and decided to not address the problem. And the ivy continued to grow until another word was covered up, until finally the only thing that was left was we preach. And the sad thing is that describes so many churches, so many churches in our day and age that have lost, lost the glory of the gospel, lost uh, the beauty of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, have lost the, um, the amazement that comes along with knowing that our God is a covenantal God who makes covenant, who keeps covenant, who renews covenant in our hearts and, and by his grace saves and redeems us. And I believe this is the reason why churches need teaching elders, not simply as an act of um, regulatory polity or some type of uh, external governmental structure that has to be checked off in order for us to be in compliance with the state. No, there's something far more ecclesiological about it. There's something far more serious about it. The body of Christ, the gathering together of God's people is the most precious entity in all of the world. And one day, Micah, along with those of us who are in leadership, and by extension, in many ways, the entire flock of Christ will have to give an account. And I pray that when Micah and the rest of us stand before Christ, that we would not have redu reduced the call of Christ down to uh, something that, that fits comfortably into culture. In many ways, we stand against the currents of culture, proclaiming the good news of God's grace. And this is what Paul wants us to know, as we read earlier, concerning this charge. Notice that he says to Timothy, I charge you. Now, he could have charged him on the basis of mere relationship. 
Certainly, Paul had been his spiritual father. He had called him his son in the faith. He could have easily just simply appealed to him on the basis of that relationship. He could have done what a lot of moms do, and that is exercise the, uh, the uh, instrument of guilt. No one knows how to run a guilt trip like my mom. And uh, I trust you won't listen to this Spotify so I can speak openly. Uh, but but it's, a, it's a tool that, that could have been used to manipulate Timothy into obedience. Timothy, you know who I am to you. You know what I've done for you. You are obligated based off of that relationship to do what I'm about to tell you. But notice that Paul does not do that. He does not appeal on the basis of relationship, but rather on the foundation of five transcendent truths, transcendent and sobering um, fear of God producing truths. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. Think about that for a moment, the weight of that for a moment. He could have stopped there, but he goes on and says, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge? Now he has given us a full-orbed view of um, our triune God who not only creates but redeems and, yes, will judge. We will all stand before him, and we need not forget that. He will judge, according to the Scriptures, the living and the dead. He goes on to say, and by his appearing and his kingdom, Paul is grounding what he is about to say in the most sobering realities of all of cosmic history. That is the gospel. The gospel is a cosmic story from Genesis to Revelation of God's redemption of not only humanity, but, but all of creation, the establishment of his kingdom from all eternity's past to all eternity future. And here's what he proclaims to him after grounding all of this in the seriousness of those truths, the identity and the kingdom, the coming judgment of our God, the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here's the charge, preach the word. Preach the word. So, the question that must be considered is what should be the pastor's primary charge or responsibility? What is the pastor's primary charge and responsibility? Paul leaves no mystery. He leaves no doubt about this. He does not leave it up to us. Micah, you are about to be invited into a very busy office. There will be meetings, and I was reminded this morning of paperwork, and there will be gatherings of social importance and all of these activities that you might want to uh, be tempted to be involved in, but God never calls you to be an expert in those things. What he charges you and me and us with is preaching the word. I love what Dr. John D. Payne says about this in his writings on a confessional approach to preaching. He helps to lead a wonderful church in South Carolina. Listen to these words. He says, 
The preaching of God's word is the pulse beat of confessional of our confessional heritage. It is the Reformed Church's highest priority. Christians need faithful preaching. Notice what he says. It's not just the world that needs faithful preaching. Christians need faithful preaching. The church in America needs faithful preaching. The world needs faithful preaching. Preachers need faithful preaching. Preaching is the ultimate non-negotiable, a primary and irreplaceable means of grace. Without the regular proclamation of God's law and gospel, believers are like plants lacking sunshine and water, withering in the darkness and spiritual confusion of this present evil age. What a warning for our souls. What a reminder of the primary responsibility to which you have been called that we are called to love the world, but the greatest expression of that love is the proclamation of God's truth that transforms human hearts. And when people, the people of God, gather together in communities of faith, forms communities as well. But I love the fact that he reminds us that everyone needs the gospel. The world and the unsaved need the gospel. The believer needs the gospel. And yes, my heart, even as the preacher, needs the gospel, and so does yours. Because we are idolaters at heart. And we will enthrone ourselves when given the opportunity again and again and again. My preferences, my desires, my wants. And this is why we need a proper reminder of what the gospel actually is again and again and again. Because if you ask the average American Christian what is the gospel, we've become so self-consumed that we probably will tell you that it's the story that Jesus came for me and he died for me so that I might be saved. And we have inserted throughout the text of Scripture so often, I, where the Scripture reads, we. We are a community of redeemed people for the glory of God to proclaim the truth of Christ, to not only proclaim the, the uh, authority of Scripture, which, by the way, was the central doctrine of the Reformation. The central doctrine of the Reformation from which every other glorious truth of the Reformation comes together is sola scriptura. It is scripture alone. And it is the fact that scripture is authoritative. But it is not just something that we ascribe to verbally or intellectually or academically or scholarly. The authority of scripture is proven when we adopt and fully believe in our hearts in the sufficiency of scripture. It is sufficient for me as a husband. Sufficient for me as a father. It's sufficient for me as a friend. It's sufficient for me to live, practice daily. We preach. That is our responsibility. Another question that I think the text ascribes to answer is what should be the content of our charge or the content of our preaching? Notice what he says in verse number two, again, preach the word. 
And he gives this caution in verse number three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This has always been true, but certainly true in an iPhone world. It was 2012 where the iPhone was introduced, and who would know the transformational impact it would have on our culture, centering our preferences above everything else. And man, do we fall prey to it, everything catered around us. I was thinking about how this um, expression of the fall shows up in my family in particular. Maybe yours is a little bit different, but uh, we have three generations living in our home. My mother-in-law, who's a widow, came to live with us about 13 years ago. So it's my mother-in-law, me and my wife, and my children. And uh, if you really want to have fun and arouse conflict in the Brooks household, just show up around dinner time. And for years and years, it was the case before the iPhone was really prominent uh, that uh, when dinner was chosen, it'd be one meal. How many remember that? When one meal would be served for everybody in the family and you either ate it or went hungry. Anybody else raised in that household? Uh, well, uh, our house has changed a lot uh, in recent years. Now it feels like I'm door dashing for everybody. Feels like everybody has a preference. Everybody has uh, their own desires, their own styles. And this may be humorous when it comes to food, but it certainly is not humorous when it comes to what's on the menu for a sermon. When it comes to what's on the menu for public proclamation and exposition of God's word. We are not given the power or the privilege to choose what's on the menu. We have been told what to preach, and that is the word. We must preach the word. Micah, you will know fully and be acquainted with the book of church order. And uh, here's what it says in chapter 53, paragraph 2. The subject of a sermon should be a verse or some verses of Scripture and its object to explain, defend, and apply some part of the system of divine truth or to point out the nature and state, the bounds and obligation of some duty. A text should not merely be merely a motto, but should fairly contain the doctrine proposed to be handled. I hope you hear that. I hope you hear that clearly. That the basis of Scripture should be the text of Scripture. And as the famed Old Testament prophet used to say, Walter Kaiser, keep your finger on the text. And if by chance you should gesture with the hand, that you use uh, to uh, those that you're preaching to, put the other hand on the text as a way of reminding you that you are constantly tethered to the text of God's Word, to remind you that it is God's Word that gives us not only the, um, the umbrella theme of the day, but the subpoints and the application are all found in the text of Scripture. I love this warning that it should not simply be a motto. 
What good is that? What good is it if I stand before you and say, today we will discuss God's love. If all I do is give you secular, humanistic definitions of that love, God not only gives us the text, but he places in the empty containers that we call words the content that is uh, full of his divine truth that reveals his character and again imparts in our hearts grace. Third question that the text I think answers so beautifully, so clearly is when should that charge be discharged? In other words, when should the responsibility of preaching the word be performed? Going back again to verse number two, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Notice what he says in his own way, constantly, consistently, again and again, preach the word. When the culture wants to hear the word, preach the word. But when the culture does not want to hear the word, preach the word. When human hearts seem to be soft and pliable to the word, preach the word. But when human hearts are hardened against the word, even then, preach the word. In times of peace, preach the word. But in times when evil once again has reared its head and we are reminded that we live in the face of a fallen world, even then, preach the word. In times of joy, preach the word. But when sorrow grips your heart, preach the word. Over and again, in season and out of season, condition and train your heart to constantly come back to the word of God. Because again, it is our anchor and it does renew us. Why does Paul tell us, that the Word should take such prominence in our gatherings, that the Word should guide every aspect of our worship. Why does Paul center the Word of God in the human heart? Why does Paul seem to rely so strongly on the authority, the inerrancy, the infallibility of the Word of God, the inspiration and eternality of the Word of God? I believe that the answer is found in another one of his writings to Timothy. And here I turn quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And in 1 Timothy 5, as I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Notice that Paul connects the preaching of the word, the centrality of, uh, of, of Christ and the word in our hearts 
to something far more profound than just simply a spiritual discipline or habit. It should be a discipline. It should be a habit, but not merely for religious purposes, but because it is forming something in us that cannot be formed in us apart from the Word of God, and that is love. The aim of our charge is love. Now, I want you to understand this in conjunction or in comparison to what is the prevailing perspective or uh, view of Christians in our culture today. You see, there is a a myth uh, among our culture today that, that, that if you are a Christian, that somehow you cannot be loving. That to um, ascribe to the teachings of Christ is somehow uh, rendered us deficient of being able to love properly. To which we must respond that it is impossible for the human heart to love properly apart from the Spirit of Christ at work from us and good doctrine. You see, the end goal of good doctrine is not just so we can have notebooks full of notes or memorize facts or have uh, something to say to friends at theological parties and discussions, but the end goal of good doctrine is communal. It is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit who through their loving union has in the Godhead has has created all things, you and I, calling us into community to express that love one to another. That love does not proceed from a vacuum. In other words, I cannot love sinners properly apart from the formation that happens in my heart when the truth of God's inerrant word is implanted as a seed that grows up and produces fruit within me that cannot be produced otherwise. So where does love flow from? Certainly not the music or the movies or the entertainment of our current age. But notice what it flows from. Three things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Where do I get these three things? I get these three things from the charge of the Word of God. It's the Word of God that produces within me a pure heart. It's the Word of God that produces within us a good conscience. It's the Word of God that produces within us a sincere faith. And if, Micah, you would hope that your church family would reflect these things. They will only be produced as a result of the faithful commitment to the Word of God. So preach the Word. If not, we will render men and women deficient of love, unable to love God, unable to love the family of faith, unable to demonstrate the love that is prerequisite for global missions, for evangelization, for the transformation of the human heart through the proclamation of the gospel. So 
there are many things that are worthy of our consideration today. But I pray the utmost would be our commitment to the holiness of the Word of God, the faithful proclamation of it, the commitment to living it out in the fear of the Lord before a watching world, regardless of the cultural currents, because if we keep our feet firmly planted in God's Word, we will bear faithful witness, the faithful witness that a lost world needs in order to experience the redemption that is found in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our great and glorious God, we thank you that you alone have been good and gracious to us in sending our Savior, who through his death, burial, and sacrifice on the cross has redeemed us. Thank you for the communion that we now have with you. And Lord, I thank you for this body of believers, the fellowship of the saints, the family of faith, the household of faith. I pray that we would be hardened and encouraged in our convictions. And I pray, Lord, that we would spur one another on to love and good works, that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of God and of our Savior, Jesus. Continue to spread, Lord, that you would bless, that your work would continue to spread in and through us. Lord, as we have prayed earlier, we pray that even more communities would experience the grace of the proclamation of God's word, the proclamation of your word that is able to build us up and give us an inheritance with the saints. Now, Lord, we thank you for all that you've done, for all that you're doing, and for all that you will do. And it's in the mighty, matchless, and magnificent name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said,